All right, hello everyone. Welcome once again to Colin. Hey, good to be here. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm uh, I'm in I'm in mourning for the next ten days, though. So this might be my last public appearance. For quite oh, some time. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you were able to to come out for this. This is <laughs> people need us on a night like this. Uh, what was your uh, What was your thought when you heard that uh, the sovereign had passed into the great beyond? I am, uh, you know, I, I just I find it weird. I find it weird that it's. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm just too, um, <laughs> too autistic. Detached. Yeah, autistic. I, <laughs> I, I just like you're. I don't know. Like I sort of block out European politics, um, like countries that I think are are sort of American, you know, America light. That are you know, their politics are sort of downstream from ours. I sort of, on principle, don't really pay much attention to them or understand much of the culture and what's going on. Um, and so. Like I, you know, so I don't know. I never paid that, especially like the royal family. I thought, you know, I thought the royal family was like a thing for like uh, people who read tabloids and stuff. I didn't know that like uh, people uh, care all that much about it. But yeah, people people are emotional. I have no, yeah, I have no emotional reaction to this at all. Are you? Are you? Are you um, well, you know, I think I think the association with interest in the royal family. Um, as somehow like a, a, a product of tabloid intrigue is, uh, you know, results from mostly like the 90s with the whole saga over Princess Diana and so on. Um, so there is a, an element of people who have like a special fascination with the royal family and who would, you know, follow the ins and outs of every little controversy that's cooked up and, and that kind of thing. But I also think there's another level of attachment that a far greater number of people have to the royal family that isn't about just that sort of transient gossipy stuff. And it kind of is... Um, about just the basics of national identity um, or even beyond Britain, just sort of an Anglo-sphere identity. Um, and so I'm not surprised that there's a strong reaction to the Queen dying. I mean, I knew there would be. Just because, for no, if only for no other reason than she's been a constant, one of the few constant presences I guess I in public life for like 70 years. So if you have somebody who's been present for that long <laughs> and is more or less seen as a fairly benign uh, and endearing figure who, you know, seems to have maybe some attractive... Qualities like you know understated humor and this sort of grandmotherly um, you know uh, affection, charm. <laughs> yeah, charm. Then you know why wouldn't people feel that way? Uh, I think I think it's sort of a conflate. It's a it's a misguided conflation to say that oh you know only the gossip stuff 
is you know what sort of marks why why yeah. people would have an investment I guess, in uh, yeah the I, I guess I knew I guess I knew um, yeah I you know I I knew the queen like I knew I I guess what was I not expecting I was not expecting people I know to care. I guess of anything. I think that's probably what surprised me. Yeah, if you asked me, like the Queen, it would be a big news story. CNN would run with it. I just, uh, like, I just was, uh, I just turned out handy, by the way. Nothing about the Queen, just about Hunter Biden. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> there's literally nothing. And then there's about Dems and crime. Let me see the other. Uh, he couldn't even. He couldn't even give her like five minutes. No, he didn't give her a second. He didn't give her a second. Just opened up Hunter CCP, and then Dem right. and Dems and their crime. Uh, and Tucker had a segment on her, and let me just see what CNN. CNN is, of course, yes, just CNN is just yeah. So I, I would have expected that. I guess there's like I didn't think Americans would have like an emotion. I didn't think CNN would like stream, uh, you know, just uh, stuff about the Queen. But I didn't think like Americans would have like an emotional reaction. It's become like a culture war football. I mean, do you see like these like uh, uh, like politically correct professors and these you know. Uh, these uh, liberal black um, uh, like uh, journalists, like Jameel Hill, and like these other these other people, uh, they're like, yeah, you know, Queen, you know, we have to talk, have a serious discussion about colonialism, which is like, you know, it's sort of stupid because like obviously the Queen didn't have anything to do with it. But then like people in America, right? It's like translated into America, right? It's like it's like a culture war thing where it's like, you know, like these people are like insensitive towards this, you know old white institution and these other people are like okay we have to defend this institution and Tucker's segment today like the opening segment was just about how great the British uh, Empire was and how it like saved you know made life better for all these Africans and how Africa went the hell after that so it's you know it's like uh, it's that that's the kind of sort of uh, you know that's like the most online of like the TV shows right um, and so that so that's like it's just sort of been translated into like you know American culture war issue which I guess all that was foreseeable. I don't know why I would have been surprised. I guess I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the Queen and the response to her death. Yeah, I mean, I I knew, of course, there would be this sort of gleeful, recreational disparagement, not just of the Queen herself, because there's not a whole lot to disparage about her as an individual. It's not like she personally did much that anyone could really find objectionable to the, to the extent that they're disparaging her is for what she represents or like the institution that she embodies. But also there's a disparagement of anyone who would feel like an affection toward her. And that's sort of more what I object to um, because yeah, if any, anybody should be able to satirize or even harshly criticize a foreign monarch if they want, especially one that the United States <laughs> broke off from. Um, but I don't know. There seems like a, uh, a conscious attempt on, some of the, on the part of some of those people to demean anyone who, who would have like a reverence for the queen. And, you, and if you think about it, I mean, there are people who are 70 years old today in England, for example, uh, for whom, like, the queen could be literally the most constant variable in their entire existences. So to demean them having, like, a, a an emotional or affectionate response to someone of that stature in their lives uh, dying, I mean, there's something that's, that's frivolous and uh, almost vulgar about it to me. Um, 
Of course. You know, I, when my, 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 initial, my initial reaction to it, I mean, I did, I have to admit, I did felt, feel sort of uh, unexpected uh, sorrow uh, about it. Not, again, not because I really have any, any attachment to the Queen. And I mentioned this earlier, but it was almost more like it's, it's a, sort of a wistfulness about a bygone era or something, or like the, um, the severing of certain... The severing of a certain like historical continuity that she uh, maybe represented, or something like that. It, w- it was more just about the broader <laughs> significance, more so than you know a uh, you know than than remorse that a ninety six year old woman had died. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it's petty, and it's. I think what the what the uh, what the anti queen faction would say. Uh, is that well? You know they're they're you know they're having a fondness for empire and white supremacy and and uh, blah blah blah. But you know it's stupid. To, I mean it's stupid. To, <laughs> I mean and they would say you know it's uh, they are uh, uh, you know I guess enablers. I mean I think some of these people are under the impression that Britain is still a colonial power. I mean like there's some like very left wing people who think like you know. Uh, economic trade is colonialism and all that. So I think there's something like that. And I guess the queen is just a symbol of evil, right? Even if she doesn't... I assume some of these people... Even, if she, like even actually, if she presided over decolonization. Oh, <laughs> uh, they don't care. They don't think how decolonization is, goes nearly far far enough. I, you know, I'm sure. You know, you know how these people think. Uh, so, I, I don't know. It's, just, it's to us, to, 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 to uh, Brits, maybe it's something more. To us, it's just a uh, just another silly culture war skirmish. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to figure out a way to tie this into maybe wider themes that we had been <laughs> thinking about discussing. But, and I don't know if this uh, segue will, will work seamlessly. But there was – I don't know if you read this, and I, was, had, I forgot to send it to you. But did you read that open letter that was uh, issued by the former defense secretaries and former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff this week about uh, civilian-military relations? This, you sent this to me, you said? No, I didn't send it to you. I forgot I was going to. No, um, I didn't see this. Did you see this? this? Um, earlier this week, there was a letter, like an open letter that was issued – by, I think, every living former Secretary of Defense and every living former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh-huh. And, you know, the basic thrust of the letter was to lay out principles for, you know, what makes a healthy civilian-military uh, relations dynamic. Um and you know, a lot of the uh, the recommendations or the, the the principles laid out are fairly anodyne. It's just like you know mutual trust or the you know the primacy of civilian control or how um, you know the military active duty military agree to limit their public expression of private political views um, so as to not overly uh, politicize uh, the military, stuff like this. And um, 
you know, so if you actually read the letter, none of it seems particularly jarring. But the notable thing to me, anyway, was that the letter had even been published in the first place. It's like, why now, right? Why would the, why would all, all of a sudden all these former secretaries of defense, you know, Ash Carter, William Cohen, Mark Esper, Robert Gates, Chuck Hagel, Jim Mattis, Liam Panetta, William Perry, and then uh, all the former Joint Chiefs of Staff, why would they write this letter now just sort of restating these fairly unremarkable principles that are supposed to govern, you know, quote-unquote, civil-military relations? Well, they actually say why they're writing it in the very first paragraph, <laughs> which is the real disturbing thing to me anyway, or was. And here's how they begin the letter. We are in an exceptionally challenging civil-military environment. Many of the factors that shape civil-military relations have undergone extreme strain in recent years. Geopolitically, the winding down of the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and the ramping up of great power conflict mean the U.S. military must simultaneously come to terms with wars that ended without all goals satisfactorily accomplished while preparing for more daunting competition with near-peer rivals. So they're explicitly saying that this restatement of principles on the part of, you know, the military leadership, as far as they represent it anyway, is necessary now because the military must overcome whatever impediments it's faced in the past several years to make sure that it's in tip-top shape to prepare for what they seem to believe is this inevitable, quote, daunting competition with near-peer rivals and the, quote, ramping up of the great power conflict. Uh, so, so, so I guess I'm bringing – the way I, want, I thought maybe this could be tied with the Queen is that, you know, given now we're in this period of royal transition from one of the former great powers and that the U.S. is pretty much the inheritor – uh, was the inheritor of, uh, of hegemonic status from from Britain. Uh, I don't know. It could be there's something maybe of symbolic uh, import in uh, the uh, queen, the queen's demise as the uh, rem the remnants of the the order that she presided over now prepare for a uh, a new phase of so-called near peer competition or great power conflict which are well, uh, which are which are amusing euphemisms for like <laughs> cataclysmic war yeah well i don't understand so they wrote a letter about civilian military relations i mean that's a pretty abstract subject and there, there's nothing that uh spurred this on no event i mean was it the was the biden thing i mean there was some talk about biden's speech uh, people were saying that he used the military politically. It wasn't this. No, I mean, uh, I mean, they, they 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 say ostensibly why they've written it in the first paragraph. I mean, I, I read you that part, but they go. I'll read the rest of the paragraph real quickly. They go on to say, socially, the pandemic and the and the economic dislocations have disrupted societal patterns and put enormous strain on individuals and families. Politically, military professionals confront an extremely adverse environment characterized by the divisiveness of effective polarization that culminated in the first election in over a century when the peaceful transfer of political power was disrupted and, and in doubt. Looking ahead, all these factors could all these factors could get well get worse before they get better. 
Uh-huh. In, such an, in such an environment, it is helpful to review the core principles and best practices by which civilian and military professionals have conducted healthy American civil military relations in the past and can do so continue, and can continue to do so if vigilant and mindful. Okay, so that's why they say they're doing it um, now anyway. So it's like, you know, Jackass January 6th stuff combined with the necessity of the military's military being able to prepare for inevitable quote-unquote great power conflict which is you know again one of the more absurd euphemisms currently in uh, currency mm-hmm. uh yeah it's that sounds i mean odd i just looked up what the, this is and it got i guess it got looks like it got pretty much no attention i mean even i google it it's not like doesn't pop up right away um, there's a New York Post article if you put the Joint Chief of Staff. Uh, oh, I was in the New York Times and Washington Post and stuff. So let me see. Joint Chiefs of Staff. Okay, and, and okay. Do they do this all? They I mean, I saw. I mean, I saw because I was just you know browsing the New York Times. So did they, did they, they don't there. do this a lot. Okay, yeah. N- no, I mean it's uh, unusual. I, I've, I've never seen it before. Uh-huh. I mean, I've, I've seen joint letter. I mean, the I've never seen a, a letter. Signed by all former defense secretaries and all former joint chiefs of staff. The, actually, the former defense secretaries, or at least a group of them, did a letter, I want to say, in the past year or two about the peaceful transition of power. Sure. But, but with the joint chiefs included, I mean, it's, I can't recall it being done before, so it seems rather unusual. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, the letter is not pointed at Trump, but when you hear him talk about Hitler's generals – well, that's not who we are, Admiral Mullen, one of the signatory. This seems like just a uh, letter originated during a discussion between uh, Peter Fever and Mar- Mar- Martin Dempsey. Okay, so this is just like, you know, they write these letters. They're always about Trump, aren't they? I mean, they wrote, they wrote like... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been an epidemic of open letters since 2016 <laughs> that nobody cares about except the people who signed them. Yeah, yeah, especially national security types. So that, that's what seems like, that's what that's what this is. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, uh, okay. Yeah, you're right. It was in the times, but it's like, you know, it wasn't a big story in the times. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like, I think they've, I think they've, um, I think they have, I think we've become sort of immune to the stuff. I think they've used the letter strategy, um, one too many times. And like, you know, you can't, I, you know, like, like I remember the first few times this happened, it was like the biggest thing. It was like all, you know, it was probably, I, I don't remember exactly what there was one with like just Republican, um, national security people who denounced Trump uh, during the 2016 election. Yeah, but there was like other people who denounced Trump for other stuff. You know, there was a January 6th one, but there was one before that. Um, and I remember just like that being like a really big deal at the at the time because like they didn't just write. You know, it's like oh, all these important people they all agree on this one thing. They think it's important enough to put the letter out there. Um, and then this happens and it's like nothing and it, like they're do, they're not they don't even have a reason right it's just like oh it, it's it's you know it's tuesday um let's write an open letter about how trump is <laughs> trump is bad yeah i mean it's it's i guess what's interesting about this is it, it sort of shows like what the dynamic um uh, is going to be when trump runs for re-election again i think we've become immune to like every criticism of trump right like the pope right. and like <laughs> 
the Pope and like the Grand Mufti of like you know Mecca could like hold hands and like that's Trump. <laughs> and like I think we would just shrug. We'd be the like, skies oh, could open and God, God yeah. could you know issue his first pronouncements. Since, <laughs> Jesus you know, Christ, since Jesus was born, yeah, or whatever. Jesus Christ would come back, tell Christians not to vote for Trump, and evangelicals would still support him. And like nobody would be surprised <laughs> by like any of that, right? It's like just institutions and like important people like denounce Trump. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. It feels it feels like the next season of the of the Trump show. Um, it's going to have just new storylines because, like, the old storylines have gotten stale. But you know, something has to happen. Well, whatever the impact of a letter like this, which I agree would have had to have diminished, given like the oversaturation of them, especially since 2016. Because I do remember, like you, that the first time these sorts of things started to come out, it did actually feel somewhat notable because you wouldn't have expected so many people of that kind of stature to set aside, you know, whatever their other professional interests are and issue a statement that they say is such grave importance that they're, you know, taking the unusual step of putting out an open letter like this. Um, but, you know, whatever, like, the resonance of a letter like this now, given how the, you know, just the potency of the genre has uh, appreciated, it does seem worth noticing that they're at least saying the impetus for the letter is, yeah, I guess in part to do with Trump, but mo- more significantly, at least in terms of what how they place it within that first paragraph, is this whole di- idea of the, quote, ramping up of great power conflicts. So, I mean, I have to, I think it's, you know, whatever publicity this got. Yeah. No, but this, this is boilerplate. It's, 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 this in, is boilerplate it's indicative. It's point, right? That's boilerplate. It's, 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 it's boilerplate. Not, well, I mean, is it boilerplate? I mean, because they're. I, I, it just seems like there's a certain air of inevitability that now is, if anything, is quote ramping up, to just kind of inure the public for just the unavoidability of some sort of outright military yeah. confrontation with China and or Russia. Yeah, I think we're, I mean, I think we're there already. I think that's sort of baked in. I think anything that's going to be an official statement from a national security establishment uh, group of figures <coughs> is going to have something about great power competition, right? So um, I don't think this, I mean, I don't think this letter matters. So I don't think this letter is going to push people towards, um, uh, you know, accepting great power competition, but well, but what does it say about that, the mindset of these people? I guess that they're talking so unreservedly about not just competition, but what they say is, "quote again, the ramping up of great power conflict." Like, I'm not even really interested anymore in what impact it could have on the wider public, which is negligible. I agree, but what does it say about the the mentality? Of people who are in this prominent of a position, meaning they were former defense, you know, they formerly ran the Pentagon, and or they formerly were the Joint Chiefs, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of the entire military. Um, what does it say about them? I mean, obviously that they want to play Russia and China. Okay, well, yeah, there you go, bingo, ding, ding, yeah. ding. Yeah, I mean, we we do that though, right? It was, but there was no surprise here as far as what these people. Uh, what these people want or what they what they believe in. But look, do you think that, but I guess an interesting question is, do you think that they um, like if they had a choice between like stopping Trump, like is hating Trump like more important than not getting their wars and that getting their wars is getting their wars more important than uh, 
hating Trump. If there was a real anti-war candidate that ran against Trump on the Democratic side, say, I don't know, Jesse Ventura or something. I can't think of an anti-war Democrat. But I'm just picking up Jesse Ventura. He's not even Democrat. a Democrat anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of anyone. Uh, so if, if Jesse Ventura was like the Democratic candidate, like would they just uh, – well, I guess he's crazy like in the same way Trump is. Imagine like a uh, – a respectable anti-war person who's not uh, who's not like crazy. Um, I don't know, like Ralph Nader. Is he even anti-war? I don't know. Um, would they? Would they? Would they like support Trump in that case? Well, <laughs> I think the reason they don't support Trump, or one of them anyway, uh, or maybe I should say, one of the reasons why they're continuously raising these kinds of alarms about Trump is because they view him as jeopardizing the ability of the U.S. to competently you know, wage a great power conflict against China and Russia. Um, so if Trump were running against someone who specific, you know, explicitly wanted to avert that conflict – um, then yeah, maybe they would have to <laughs> they would have to uh, set aside their uh, criticisms and uh, go for uh, the option that would enable at least some pursuit of this sort this conflict now, which seems to be like their whole animating you know drive. Uh, it's like the organizing principle now of the national security establishment. And, and yeah, I, I agree. This is, of course, nothing new. And if you read the, have read the literature for a long time, um, great power competition or conflict has been a concept that's basically boilerplate for, for years. I guess I'm just noticing that uh, it's taking on a different kind of uh, vehemence in the way it's being emphasized. Um, and the... You know, the uh, the meaning that's being ascribed to it, and particularly the way that, like, war is increasingly talked about as just an inevitable fact of life, or, you know, it's uh, just like a law of physics somehow that this will result in, this so-called competition will, will result in, like, an outright military conflagration. Um, that seems like it's it's picking up in its... Uh, the you know the the fervency with which it's being talked about. Yeah, um, I you know I, I don't know if I agree that their uh, their hatred of Trump is um, you know primarily or mostly about um, uh, it's partially you know, it's partially not, it's partially, but I think it's I think it's you know I think it's a small minority of, of it because I think that Trump is. Um, you know, I think it's a January 6th stuff. I just think it's sort of a class thing. These people hate Trump at this point because I think he's actually, <laughs> I think as Trump, like, um, as this presidency went on, he became more and more of sort of an establishment Republican um, on these foreign policy issues. So I don't think there, I don't think there ever really was much of a threat of him doing anything uh, independently. Um Maybe they perceive, maybe they perceive it that way. Uh, maybe they don't. But I think, I think at this point, it's just it's sort of a class thing, right? We it's responsible, you know, uh, adults in the room are like part of this class that doesn't like Trump and like you know these people who are anti-democracy. I think that's that's a lot of it. So that's what they do now is they write open letters. Um, and Trump could you know fall off the you know uh, fall to his knees in front of them, and I think you know it wouldn't change any of that at this point. Yeah, I mean, obviously, on a policy level, 
Trump did eventually gravitate toward what the establishment position would have been. But I don't think that's what's actually motivating their opposition to Trump, meaning it's not like they have some policy difference with him. They are of the view that Trump's like general comportment or his uh, you know, manner or his you know, lack of respect for institutions and norms and that sort of thing, that's what jeopardizes the ability of the U.S. to maintain the prestige required to be like this uh, global leader that would have the wherewithal or the, you know, the, the geopolitical cachet to successfully take on China slash Russia. Um, and, you know, January 6th plays into that. Like when Matt, that guy, Matthew uh, Pottinger, um, who I think was the deputy national security advisor, yeah, deputy national security advisor under Trump, uh, you know, when they, he testified before the uh, January 6th committee, um, and remember, this guy's sort of a China hawk, right? So that's going to be the sort of main principle around which he, he organizes his views. Um, he said that he thought the main damage inflicted by January 6th was the damage it did to U.S. prestige vis-a-vis China and Russia. Uh, meaning it diminished the ability of the U.S. to have like a moral high ground against China and Russia as part of this, you know, great power conflict. Um, And I think that more or less is where guys like former, you know, secretaries of defense or joint chiefs of staff, joint chiefs of staff are coming from when they raise these objections to Trump. It's not so much that they have a specific policy difference with Trump on questions related to Russia and China. It's more of this like vague uh, symbolic thing that they feel Trump is jeopardizing in service uh, of, you know, that that could, you know, undermine the ability of the U.S. to, you know, prevail against in, in this great power competition. Look, maybe maybe they perceive it that way. Um, I don't know, you know, how they think. Maybe they've convinced themselves of that. But you know, Trump. I mean, I think objectively has been the best possible thing to ever happen to um, uh, <coughs> NATO and you know the uh, these alliances. I mean, these people. You know, they the. I think what Trump does is like he he invokes like this disgust reflex in American elites and in European elites. And it brings them together. It brings them together. Like this is our common enemy, like Trump and his and his boyfriend Putin. Um, so this is why you know I think this is, you know, for, if they if they're rational, like if they care about you know, uh, if they care about you know maintaining American you know world uh, worldwide inf- influence and military dominance and these uh, uh, the transatlantic alliances and all that uh, all that stuff, uh, they should be rooting for Trump. I think someone like Obama actually um, was way more of a threat. To them, um, Obama, the fact that you know he disagreed with them on some fundamental uh, things, the fact that he, um, you know, was sort of, was liked in Europe, but uh, you know, so like really beloved by like elites, um, especially in, in you know in Europe and the United States itself, um, but then was like skeptical of a lot of the things that the blob wanted to do. Um, he you know he didn't want to uh, provoke Russia. Um, he didn't uh, you know intervene militarily in Syria uh, the way they wanted. He did the Iran. Uh, 
nuclear deal. Um, so I think that, you know, you know, so it's like a question of like how much they care about like their ideology and it just like maintaining these alliances. I think somebody like um, Pottinger, these people in like these, these like ultra hawks, like these Bolton types, um, you know, I think that I think they hate they, that's why they work for Trump. They wouldn't work for Obama. They see Obama as more of a threat. I think these other people like these Mark Esper um, and these, you know, former Joint Chief of Staff, I think there's, you know, they're uh, sort of divided, right? They have their belief in NATO and, you know, Amer- American use of power abroad. Um, at the same time, they have this, you know, class sort of consciousness as these people um, who are the responsible ones and, you know, tamp down on right-wing populism and, you know, behavior unbecoming of an American leader. And that turns them against Trump. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I think this, there's, a, there's a lot going on here. There's a class thing and then there's the, uh, yeah, there's the, there's the policy and there's, the, there's sometimes at odds. Yeah. Um, did you read that um, that little essay I sent you uh, by uh, yeah Tr- who's the Trennan? Who's, who's the author? Is he a important guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, Dimitri Trennan, who's you know this. Um, are you are you familiar with him? He's the. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, no. Okay, he's probably one of the top think tankers in Russia, <laughs> you know, okay. he's, uh, um, I think he's the, he, the head or he was the head of like the Carnegie endowments, uh, Russia center. And he, you know, has served in high level positions within the Russian government. Um, and, you know, he used to be somewhat more pro, he used to be like, fairly pro-Western, you know, mm-hmm. so he was more on the liberalizing reformist wing of the Russian uh, intelligentsia. Um, and similar to, you know, Medvedev, I guess, who was more in that camp, broadly speaking, in the past, he's gotten fairly more uh, radicalized recently. We're more um, uncompromising in his pro anti-western you know views uh, so um i just thought it, so you know in light of his being more moderate in the past um i thought that you know him saying that there's no room for any dialogue with the adversary any, anymore and he calls the adversary just the collective west um there's no <laughs> prospect of any compromise uh, based on a balance of interest. Um, and he says the only option now or the only dynamic that's available is, quote, of Rus- Russia-Western uh, relations. He said the only dynamic now present for Russia-Western relations is, quote, a dramatic severance of all ties. Um, so e- even somebody who is basically a moderate or a reformer uh, or at least in that camp not too long ago, is now writing essays that basically put the nail in the coffin of any even faint hope of a rest- restoration of normal relations with the West. And he says that, you know, the, the number one priority for Russia, above all else, including, you know, expansion of you know, economic ties with, you know, China and other parts of the East, um, which he also advocates. But he says, like, above all else, uh, 
quote, the immediate and most important task of this strategy is to achieve strategic success in Ukraine. So he's basically saying it's existentially vital for the future of Russian civilization to prevail in Ukraine. Um, and you know, I was thinking, I was thinking of that as I was sort of at least in bits and pieces following some of the updates around this counteroffensive that's uh, underway, seemingly in Ukraine. That um, at least according to some of the more pro-Russian channels that I uh, occasionally look at, um, even they seem to be acknowledging that Ukraine did make. Um, Somewhat substantial gains uh, in uh, in the Kharkiv well, area. The, the pro-Russian bloggers, I think, tend to be uh, they're, they're sometimes very critical of the government. So you shouldn't say even they. They, they, they tend to they, they've sometimes been very negative. Um, yeah, maybe Russian so. war effort. I guess there's this, there's one particular uh, Telegram channel. I guess like ASB Military uh-huh. um, that is seldom overtly critical. Of Russia, but every now and then it is. So you know, when every now and then they are critical of Russia or they acknowledge some sort of setback, it kind of gives credence to the idea that the setback that the reporting is real. Um, but uh, anyway, you know, so if so, there's some sort of there's something paradoxical now going on. I would think about this counteroffensive, which is that you know the more gains that Ukraine makes the more fraught the situation is, it would seem, because, you know, if Russia is ascribing existential importance to it succeeding militarily, and Ukraine is also ascribing existential importance to it succeeding militarily, and they both have increasingly maximalist objectives, and they're both increasingly ruling out any even any notion of some sort of diplomatic settlement with Zelensky even just this week when he going on American TV and uh, making explicit on ABC <laughs> that there will be no negotiations with all at all with Russia because Russia is a terrorist state and they can't negotiate with terrorists. So he's pretty much invoking like the old George W. Bush line. Um, then I don't know. I, I would be a bit wary about uh, cheering for <laughs> a Ukrainian counteroffensive if it's bringing the conflict more and more to the brink of this like existen- mutually existential uh, collision. Um, yeah. So yeah. We say these, 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 say these, uh, uh, these uh, guys in Russia who used to be a little bit more uh, friendly to the West are becoming uh, more hawkish and more pessimistic about having friendly relations. Um, it's the same thing here, right? Like you don't see a lot of people um, saying, let's try to get along with Russia anymore. I mean, you have the Tom Friedman uh, article in the Times uh, a few months ago um, that, you know, sort of uh, – you know, you know, uh, sort of was leaning in that direction, but it's become sort of it's become so it's taboo to say like we're going to have like a decent relationship with like Russia or, or Putin. No one, no one's making that argument either. Um, the idea that it's become completely the mainstream idea that you cut them off from you know international politics and you uh, uh, you try to reduce their status as this guy. You know, I posted the um, I, I posted in the chat the uh, uh, the article that you, that you're referring to. 
Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to see how this thing ends anytime soon. I, you mentioned sort of the uh, parallels with the war on terror. Um, I think it's sort of like, you know, I think you need like a generation to pass here before like the emotions of the Ukraine conflict um, are no longer with us. So I mean, to end Afghanistan, I mean, we couldn't talk to the Taliban uh, for two decades, right? Because like, think about like negotiating with the Taliban, like in 2003 or 2004, <clears throat> how unthinkable that would have, that would have been, right? It, like it had to pass to the point where like, People didn't even think about terrorism anymore. They didn't care about terrorism. And then you could sit down with the Taliban and sort of negotiate uh, uh, the exit. Uh, it's going to have to be like that for um, with Russia. You know, I don't think that I don't think like five, ten years. I don't I don't think any year. I don't think any American government is going to be able to make peace here. Um, I don't think any Ukrainian government is going to uh, make peace either. I think, you know, it's possible Ukraine just you know, runs out of people. I mean, they're, you know, they, they, they don't have a high birth rate. A lot of people have fled, you know, a lot of people get killed. You can imagine they're just running out of uh, bodies at, at, uh, at some point. Uh, and if that, I mean, if Russia advances that it's, I mean, it's, they're still not going to make peace with Russia. That, that makes it, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe if anything makes it uh, less likely. Um, and then you try to imagine it working the other way where Ukraine, uh, Attacks Russia. Does Russia give up? I mean, Russia can still have a draft. I mean, Russia has not even mobilized um, its ma- its manpower anywhere near fully yet, um, and so that's there. I mean, I talked was talking to my friend Philippe Ramon um, uh, today, and he's he's convinced that the uh, energy situation for Europe is going to be a lot worse than people think. That this is going to be a disaster. It's going to he, the, he says he told me that the uh, amount spent on energy is going to go for he, he thinks it's going to go from GDP about three percent of GDP in these European countries to like nine percent. He says like these economic models that like are uh, trying to explain you know what's going to happen like they're based on like his, like events that historically you know are no comparison to this um, at all. Um, and so yeah, I mean Russia. I mean Russia still. Russia has the uh, energy. It still has uh, bad power reserves. So it's like, you know, neither side. I don't think is going to collapse. And if one side does collapse, you know, it's, it's not going to be over. I mean, they're going to keep fighting. So I think, you know, I would be. I would be surprised. I have a, a Salem Center. Uh, uh, I was just looking at this uh, Salem Center CSPI forecasting tournament, and we have all these kinds of questions about the war. Uh, we're gonna, you know, who's gonna control this city and who's gonna control that? Um, and then one of the questions is, will there be a peace settlement um, by July 2023? Uh, so you know, a little uh, about 11 months, you know, close to a year from now. And let me see what what it's at right now. It's uh, let me see if I can find this market. It's at I can't find it, but last time I checked, um, it was it was close to 50 50. Um, and I don't bet in these markets because I'm running that. But yeah, I, I think that's way too high. I don't think there's a good chance this ends um, yeah, for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that the war on terror parallel could be apt in that like, you need like a generation or a half generation to pass. And you need like the most acute phase of the emotional intensity to subside before there could be some agreement. Um, because we do seem now to be like in the peak of the like mutual animosities, um, especially on the, you know, 
I don't know how reliable polling is from Ukraine at this point, uh, but it doesn't seem implausible that at least it's roughly correct when it gets reported that something like 96% or whatever of uh, the Ukrainian population is opposed to any negotiations. Um, and, uh, you know, would, would, would refuse to give, to concede any territory. So, I mean, that's a pretty hardened position. Um, and so, you know, the only real viable alternative in that case is for uh, one side or the other to achieve total military uh, victory. And I, I don't think uh, Russia is going to allow total military victory, yeah. even if Ukraine does achieve certain, you know, territorial gains right. in, in, the mix, in the midst of these counteroffensives. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the difference with, uh, you know, the, war, the Taliban and uh, Russia is that, uh, you know, the Taliban uh, didn't have uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if Russia, I mean, if Russia's territory is threatened, <coughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, Russia has nuclear weapons. So Russia can, Russia can, you know, Russia has a trump card. Russia can, Russia has a trump card that it can play um, at some point, and if it gets desperate enough, um, you know, it might, unless Putin wants to be like Gorbachev and just let the whole thing, you know, collapse, which doesn't seem very likely, doesn't really, Putin doesn't seem like that kind of guy. Um, Ukraine, you know, will never accept, uh, you know, Russia ruling over it. Um, it seems, you know, Russia has trouble enough seizing these uh, areas where it has relatively more support and more people willing to collaborate. It's not going to uh, be able to occupy the entire country. It's not going to be able to even stabilize the front line. I mean, it's always, Ukraine's always going to be worried about Russia's going to go further and Russia's never going to feel safe um, from Ukraine. <coughs> So, yeah, I mean, I'm gaming this out. I'm trying to see. I'm trying to think, like, how this happens. I mean, we're not even... We're talking about just Russia and Ukraine. You know, like, how does the U.S., you know, the U.S., like, we know our internal politics very well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is my... I don't have many predictions about how the war is going to go, but one of my predictions is it will keep going on for a long time, but it probably is not going to be settled anytime soon. Yeah, uh, another thing I wanted to get your... Mike, or... Oh, sorry, I'm back. Yeah, sorry. Um, another thing I wanted to get your reaction to quick, and then we'll go to calls, is... Uh, so here's a, a tweet from uh, Mr. Ben Shapiro. Oh, yeah, my hero. My intellectual... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, my intellectual guiding light. Yeah. Uh, I have a... Uh, I have an amulet uh, that I... Of him that I <laughs> carry, carry around with me. I have me. an icon in the Russian style, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> so here's here's his tweet from uh, two days ago. Quote, the possibility of Chinese military aggression is still being underestimated. Their uh -huh. state-run economy is stagnating. Their demographics are upside down. Their military spending has been increasing. They look like Germany circa 1936. Their window is closing and Z Xi knows it. Okay, so when I saw that, my first Xi, instinct was... I think it's, I think it's, I think it's Xi, not Xi. G G she I mean whatever she s s like s h she close enough like I've she, heard she her. I've heard people say she, she. her hers <laughs> no I I looked it up once it is it is she but anyways I might just on. continue stubbornly stubborning stubbornly saying she just for the heck of it um so when I, my first instinct when I saw this was to try to pick it apart um and. The part that I would still maintain ought to be picked apart is when he says that their window is closing and 
Xi knows it. Because how does Ben Shapiro know what <laughs> Xi supposedly knows? It's like this incredibly annoying, like, psychoanalysis punditry that, you know, gets done all the time with respect to Putin and also increasingly with Xi. So, sorry. Xi slash Xi. Um, but I also wanted, the thing that I, I caught my eye was, okay, so is it true that Chinese military spending now is in any way comparable with Germany's military spending circa 1936, right? As a is, that what, is that what he said? Wait, he says what? He says, what did you say about the military spending? Why don't you just post this? You're looking at this tweet. Why don't you post it in the... In okay, the, I'll post it uh, in the chat. Hold on. Well, let me, let me, I, 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 don't ha- I have it on my computer, not my phone, so let me just read it again real quick. The possibility of Chinese military aggression is still being us- underestimated. Their state-run economy is stagnating. Their demographics are upside down. Their military spending has been increasing. They look like Germany circa 1936. Their window wow. is closing, and Xi knows it. So if they're looking like Germany circa 1936, and one of the factors that – demonstrates this, according to Shapiro, is that their military spending is increasing. I was sort of curious to know if Germany's military spending circa 1936 is in any way comparable to China's military spending circa 2022, because it seemed to me implausible that they could be comparable. Yeah. Um, well, Germany so, had pretty good... I think Germany was have, had a pretty good demographics in 1936. I don't know if Germany's window was closed. But hold on, but I actually, so I looked it up. I mean, it actually took much longer than I would have liked and was sort of annoying that it was hard to find most of these data. But I eventually found that, at least according to some of the literature, um, Germany, uh, Germany's military spending as a percentage of GDP by 1936 was already over 10%. Uh-huh. Um, and then by 1938 was up to like 22%, right? And... Uh, China's percentage of military spending, uh, as it, China's military spending today as a percentage of GDP is still like under two percent, so even well below the U.S. Um, but of course, that doesn't particularly matter if, in like raw terms, China's overall military spending is comparable to whatever Germany spent. You know, inflation adjust, adjusted, right? So I actually then did a quick calculation based on an estimate of how much Germany spent. Uh, in 1936 on the military and uh, you know so I adjusted it for converted like uh, marks to dollars in 1936 and then adjusted it for inflation I hope you tagged Ben Shapiro and him all your calculations at hard work well I I would have but unfortunately Ben Shapiro was kind of right in that even so in 1936 the, the total military spending of Germany um, it, it amounted to like 130 billion in today's U.S. dollars, mm-hmm. uh, whereas uh, China's military spending as of 2022 is hold on, let me pull it up real quick is about uh, 229 billion. So China okay. actually is spending more now in 2022 in the military than Germany did in 1936. Now by 1938, Germany was spending much more. Uh, and then, you know, by, of course, in the, in, into the 1940s, like something like 75%. Uh, Germany was spending like 75% on a military as a 
percentage of GDP. Um, but, you know, uh, even though I thought I was gearing up to, you know, totally debunk Shapiro, uh, it turned out that the, uh, the facts, as best as I could ascertain them anyway, didn't actually quite bear it out. But uh, I'm just so, so what do you think overall about that uh, prophecy of Shapiro's? Because I, I'm still skeptical, but uh, unfortunately I couldn't actually uh, shoot down the, uh, well, the, the, the specifics the, the, of the comparison he's making to Germany circa 1936. Well, the I mean the you know, the numbers are, are meaningless because I mean the because it's um, I mean GD, world GDP and everything else. I mean percentage of GDP is uh, is, is a better measure. And you have to compare it to what other people are uh, spending too. Um, but you know you just have to be well, like when you talk about foreign policy, like in like you know anybody on, on Twitter, it's like you have to be. Um, like you just have to be a blowhard, right? You have to just like talk about like talk about it like you're in the head of this person. You have like you know, you have one metaphor which is Nazi Germany. So like usually it's Neville Chamberlain, but like this time Shapiro was like a little uh smarter, so he had like a different uh Nazi analogy, right? It's like he he, he took us to nineteen thirty six, right before, you know, the uh, outbreak of World War Two. And you know, this is uh, this is uh, this is silly stuff. Now, the, the, China, I think, is funny. I, I'm still trying to figure out the zero. I'm still trying to th- figure out the zero COVID thing. I'm trying to figure out if it makes it more likely or less likely that they're the kind of country to attack. I think less likely because they are super risk averse, uh, and so they're just cowering behind COVID, so they don't want a war either. This uh, is consistent with like how they're they haven't been too aggressively supporting Russia. Uh, in this conflict with Ukraine, or maybe they're just you know very stubborn and you know we'll, we'll seek it, we'll uh, uh, we'll uh, hold out until the end um, for a goal that they care about. I don't think it's gonna, if that's true. If if it's okay, so if it's the first thing where they're just very risk averse and don't want war in any conflict and they want to invade Taiwan. If it's the second thing, maybe they have a long term plan, um, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, right, because the whole point of this is that you know they're they're patient and stubborn and they're gonna uh, see this thing tr- see this thing out and I, there's no particular reason to um, uh, to do it now. I don't think that you know they're, they're you said they're you know their window is closing. I, I don't see that. I mean they're gonna they could go back to growing economically growing, but they seem to not care about economic growth anymore. All they care about is not getting yeah. COVID. Like that killed their. I mean that's if they if they want a military. Um, might um, that's what they would do in the long run? They would be maximizing economic growth, and they just—it's it's just crazy. They care about nothing but not getting COVID, and so that this is like harming their economy. Maybe it's all just you know for they have to. I've heard a theory they have to maintain zero COVID until he gets his uh, third term uh, in office, and so like he's just got to say we have this goal and we've accomplished it. Um, I don't know, um, and then maybe they'll go back to caring about economic growth again. Um, but yeah, I mean, unless unless it's that, it's like you know, every indication now is I, I don't I think you know I don't think China was aggressive before, and I think it seems less likely now than it did. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about like sort of the way Shapiro frames it, and of course he's not alone, but it's sort of kind of presumptively excludes anything the U.S. might do as a contributing factor to why. It is that China could be maybe increasingly interested in launching some sort of military offensive. Like, it could only be about their own 
you know, sense of the window closing, right? Or that they're economy stagnating and therefore they have to act fast or something with the demographics or the military spending, right? It could have anything to do with like the U.S. continuing to deliberately antagonize China. Like that couldn't be a factor in yeah. why it is that they're kind of – Well, yeah, that's a good point, of, that's a good point because yeah. they think the, the China – Taiwan and the U.S. are kind of goes together. So maybe that's that would cause – Which they are. That would be <laughs> – yeah, yeah, they they are, and you know, so that could be a that could factor out if they did think the window was closing. Maybe it's, you know, the U.S. is inching towards a uh, security guarantee. I don't know the, how risk averse China seems. I don't think a Pelosi visit is enough for that. I mean, I think you have to serious. If you started seriously talking about a, uh, uh, you know, something historic, really historically unprecedented, like uh, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the step you have to take. People like the maybe like the, maybe like the formal abolition of the one China policy or independence, recognition of independence, or something for Taiwan. Oh yeah, I mean like that, that would be that would that's an easy case. Yeah, recognizing Taiwanese, Taiwanese independence. And a lot, of, and a lot of Republicans think, want that. I mean, that's that, yeah, that could course. well be what the next Republican administration does. I think you're right, I, and I think you're. I think it would have to be. Republicans would have to, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think you could get a kind of thing where, like, Republicans would. Marsha Blackburn I, wants that. Oh, Marsha, yeah, of course, Marsha, Marsha Blackburn. <laughs> it's like it's frightening. This woman is like a, you know, someone influential for foreign policy. Uh, but yeah, it would be the kind of thing where I think Democrats would, would their instinct would be like to be more cautious. It's just the establishment would say, you know, don't rock the boat. But I think, like, if Republicans really wanted to, you know, sort of demagogue the issue and sort of, you know, just, like, make them look like uh, weaker cowards, yeah, I think it's one of those things like the Iraq War where Democrats could get uh, uh, swept up in it. But, you know, it's sort of – it has, it needs a catalyst. I think it's, it's hard to um, – you know, it's, 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 you know, it's hard to make a radical move like that without any uh, direct, like, you know, proximate cause – um, but yeah, that would, that would do it. And yeah, that, that could potentially, you know, provoke China towards doing anything, but I don't know. I mean, they're very, they're very risk averse. I mean, it's like, there was a, you know, art, there was an article in the times about like how people in China are just like laughing at the government and like saying it's so disgraceful because they talked so much about how they were going to react to, um, uh, to the Pelosi visit. Now, I mean, I, you know, I haven't been paying that much close attention to it than people who have said there. There is some like serious stuff. You know, you have the islands in the uh, South China Sea. I mean, you you know, they could be playing this very smart and just creating you know new facts on the ground, build, getting the right mil, you know the military, um, uh, getting the right you know naval equipment and uh, weapon, weapons procurements and, and so on um, to be in a good position if and when the war comes. I mean, that would be. That would be sort of a you know an interpretation of them being smart and long term planning and still wanting to reunify um, Taiwan. So yeah, I, I don't know. It, we have to sort of uh, you know it, it's uh, maybe it's <laughs> yeah maybe maybe it's not uh, as simple as they are just risk averse and not willing to do anything. I mean, it, it seems like it seems like they're the the legitimacy thing. I mean, it seems like there ha- does have to be something to give here. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's go to some callers. First up is our trusted mathematician friend, of course. Uh, yeah, so, so you guys, um, you're talking about like what, what the U.S. could do that caused the China-Taiwan war, but you know, I think it's also um, uh, the Taiwanese themselves. You know, have a lot of agency there. They're divided. For, for um, you know, wouldn't that be more likely? You know, if there's some independence declaration, what would it be more likely to come from? You know, um, more hardline people in the Minjin Dong, you know, in the DPP, rather than 
the Republicans in the U.S.? I mean, won't the Taiwanese not tell the U.S. not to actually? Like, I think, you know, if Marsha Blackburn was president, Tsai would probably tell her not to go and recognize Taiwan. But, you know, if someone like Chen Shui Bon or whatever, maybe he would actually go and do it. Right? Like, yeah, I mean, well, they would, I mean, they would want to, they would have to want to do that and then eventually provoke a war, right? Which countries tend not to yeah, like yeah, to do. Yeah, right. So, I mean, but most people in Taiwan don't, but there are some hardliners in the party. So I was wondering, like, shouldn't those be the people be, um, be the people to watch rather than the Republicans in the U.S.? Like, do you think the Republicans in the U.S. would be more pro-Taiwan, quote-unquote, than, than Taiwan itself? Like, yeah, you're right. So you're saying, yeah, yeah, to, to, reckon, to uh, for the U.S. to recognize Taiwanese independence while Taiwan yeah, doesn't recognize its own independence. Right. Yeah. Taiwan, Taiwan Taiwan still has a right. Taiwan officially to them that they they they're supposed to rule over all of China, right? Right. What I'm saying is that you know in order for this to happen, you need a hardline Republican government in the U.S. and you also need a hardline Minjindan government in Taiwan, like not a moderate Minjindan, <laughs> the current one. You need like you need like Chen Shui Bon, right? You know you know this guy who like fakes his. Okay. Um. So you you know do you also need something bad to happen in Taiwan as well, right? I mean, it's not just in the U.S. Um. Yeah. Um. I was also going to ask about um, the well. I mean, you could also. I mean, you could also imagine a hardline American administration taking even more provocative steps that aren't really dependent on whatever the Taiwanese government is. You know, but you think if someone like Ma was running Taiwan, that, that you know there would ever be a China a China Taiwan war? Like, it's just very hard for me to you know. I, it, it's similar to asking if like Yanukovych was running. Uh, Ukraine, or whether it be in Russia, Ukraine, or like, don't don't you also have to pay attention to the internal politics inside Taiwan here? <laughs> uh, guys- yeah, I mean, just to some extent, but we're talking about the likelihood of a U.S.-China war, and so therefore the most significant players in that dynamic oh. are going to be the U.S. and China. Uh, but if you're talking about like a German-Russia war, then you have to understand the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. If you're talking about World War II, you have to understand the relations between Germany yeah. and Poland in the late 30s, right? I mean, I, I don't think what you're saying is actually true. You know, I, I think World War II is an example. Um, it's unclear whether, it, you know, Hitler was obviously an awful person. It's unclear whether he would have done something crazy anyway or done a different crazy thing if um, in the late 30s, you know, Pazutsky had lived, right? I mean, so the, the people who came after him were more nationalistic and more hawkish and did all sorts of things to... Germans and Jews and other minorities in Poland. This is part of what caused like that. So I mean, you know, I mean, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying anyone should just. I'm not saying it ought to be ignored what the government of Taiwan is, or it would make no difference to anything if the government in Taiwan is more hardline versus less hardline. But for example, if the American administration does something like unilaterally recognize the independence of Taiwan. You know, that's something that would probably arise out of domestic American political considerations that doesn't have a whole lot to do with whatever government's in place in Taiwan. No, but, but the Taiwanese government would, like, the Taiwanese would tell us not to unless it was, like, an extremely hard-line leader in Taiwan, right? Like, I, I don't, you know. And, um, okay, a more specific example, um, with World War II, I mean, do you think, like, the British, you know, it was more the, the issue that the British guaranteed the polls or what was... Um, was Hitler just so crazy that he's a historical anomaly? Or do you think the issue was what the Polish government did in the late 30s or, or some combination? Or I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to know. But I mean, like, so what, what's your take on World War II? How could it have been averted? Well, so, I mean, Poland had, to, Poland had to get the guarantee, right? So Poland had to be willing to fight Germany, right? Yeah, yeah, certainly. For the guarantee to make sense, yeah. 
Well, the British and French guaranteed, um, yeah, yeah they, they certainly guaranteed Poland. That, that's right. But, you know, don't you think that a lot of the, well, certainly the Nazis, you know, I would blame them the most. But um, I would also, the, the Poles themselves, you know, didn't they, like, you think if Kuzitsky lived, like, ever? Oh, yeah, they could have given, they given up uh, Desnick. I mean, they could have given up the uh, the city. I mean, that's yeah, all they exactly. Like, if Kuzitsky had not died of liver cancer in 1935, he might have just, like, signed a deal over Danzig, right? And they, they, you know, Germany might have teamed up with Poland to invade the... Yeah. Well, Hitler's first choice was the Poles to team up with him against the Soviet Union. Um, right. And so G- Germany would have been... I mean, Hitler would have been happy with... Uh, with that, uh, we would have been happy to leave an independent Poland. I mean, they had an independent Romania, and they had the independent, you know, other yeah, uh, so, but, of, you know, uh, Germany. So like the, the change here, you know, the Polish leadership being the primary. Yeah. So Taiwanese leadership matters. No, we 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 agree. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. Nobody nobody disagrees with you. Okay. Um, but I think it might be good to just look at the internal thing. And you know, as far as um, you know, I think with Hitler, he was. Really bad person who would have done something terrible anyway, but it's quite possible he would have done it. Very big of you. What? That's very big of you. Um, (laughs) But but I I think, you know, he could have done a different terrible thing, right? It's a hot take. He ended up with Germany, with Poland to invade the Soviet Union or something like that, rather than having World War II play out as it did in our time. Uh, But yeah. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, uh, at least in terms of American entry into World War II, you know, it's pretty interesting because I've been going back and reading some of the literature on this. Uh, but, you know, there was a vibrant anti-war movement prior to Pearl Harbor, stretching back several years at that point, even, you know, really picked up around 1938. And, uh, yeah, people will know about the America First organization, but there were other non-interventionist organizations that were even more kind of, you know, left or socialist oriented, like the Keep America um, out of the War Congress, I just read an article on, and there were people who specifically predicted, for example, in the summer of 1941, when the U.S. imposed an oil embargo on Japan, that it would inevitably result in a war breaking out in the Pacific. So, I mean, a lot, a lot of, a lot of what the anti-war movement said at the time in terms of what. U.S. policy was, was uh, would make inevitable was was actually borne out. Um, so that's sort of interesting to reflect on. Anyway, uh, thanks always. Let's go to uh, Walnut. If that is your real name, uh, no, it's not. But it's a good name, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, if you need a pseudonym, it's not a bad one. Awesome. Uh, so first of all, I remember writing. Um, a paper back when I was in college, and I think the GDP per uh, the the annual revenue of the Sinaloa cartel, I think I forget it was one of the larger cartels, was about half to five eighths that of Napoleon's France. So when you want to talk about you know comparing the, the Chinese military budget to Hitler's, a good comparison is hey a cartel today has the same revenue inflation adjusted for what Napoleon had back then because the world's GDP has increased that much. So that should put things in perspective yeah. over and there. And states used to have a, a slower portion. Of, I don't know about wartime, but that was universal. But generally, states spent less money. They had less ability to tax and that stuff as percentage of GDP. So yeah, you're right, of course. The comparison is meaningless. Uh, yeah, that's kind of interesting, right? But uh, so the second thing that's kind of interesting was um, you guys mentioned that like, you know, China did nothing. And here's what I think is super funny. Right now, because the United Nations recognizes China and China alone, that means if 
China was to commit a quote-unquote act of war by blockading Taiwan or declare a no-fly zone, according to American law, America has no recourse because Taiwan is part of China and they can declare a no-fly zone or a blockade over their own country. And so <laughs> it's pretty funny. I just thought that was kind of hilarious. Um, a more important question I have to think um, what do you mean? What, what, what American law are you talking about? Like what, what law America would include China, intervention on that uh, in that circumstance? Yeah. So, so after Nixon, America recognizes China as belonging under Beijing, right? Not under Taipei. So, right. basic, so basically, if China was to say that we wish to blockade Taiwan, according to American law, no, no foreign country has been blockaded. So it's like America saying the port of Long Beach is closed. They are entirely analogous. And well within the power of the federal government of the sovereign country. Well, I mean, I think there would be dispute as to whether or not that is actually what's provided for in American law. Because well, well the U.S. Yeah. I mean, supports internal sides in civil wars all the time, so that that's that, a, that, that is true. That is I mean, China's. I mean, China's that. already been claiming that the U.S. is violating the One China policy. Yeah. So I had a question for you guys, and this is a moral slash philosophical dilemma. I've never been able to square. So if I remember correctly, the crown owns about like 6 to 10 billion acres of land, which is quite a sizable amount. So my question over here would be, say hypothetically, like take it to an asymptote, right? Where the crown owns 80% of all land in the country. There is a strange question over here where either you let a hereditary monarchy essentially own your entire country so everyone is a serf who pays money just to exist, or you engage in something called quote-unquote land reform, which is communist speak for like taking people's property so they can't give it to their kids. And America's never had to face this problem because, you know, Americans created and made this country out of nothing, more or less. But where do you guys fall on this moral dilemma between land reform and respecting property rights and parents giving stuff to their kids? Uh, well, I mean, it's not something I've thought a, I've thought a lot about. I mean, it would depend on, uh, you know, it would depend on the country. I, it would probably, you know, I, I tend, you know, I tend to believe that, um, you know, have you ever heard of the Coase theorem? Uh, no, do tell me. Uh, so it's a, you know, famous idea in economics, law and economics from the, uh, uh, law professor Ronald Coase, uh, was at the University of, uh, Chicago. And basically the idea is in the long run, if you have the markets, the markets will go to the, uh, you know, the, the people who produce, um, the best, uh, the best use of, the best use of the land, right? So if there's some, if there's some, the land will, I think will get broken up eventually because people have kids, the kids. Uh, oh no, I agree with you over there. My question, you see, that is assuming a stable scenario, right? You're assuming, like, say, yeah, laminar stable. So, yeah, that's. I mean, well, so if you're asking me what kind of, you know, what kind of system I would prefer for uh, a new country or something, I would prefer a, a stable uh, market market economy. I mean, that's that's what I would do. I, I, yeah, I would probably wouldn't be positively inclined towards land reform. I mean, you could imagine an extreme. You know, case where it's just you know out of control, and so that could be different. But yeah, in general, I, I would tend not to be in favor. So my own my only concern over there would be, you know, there's a, um, in physics, there's a question of what you call transient times, where how long does say you know two pendulums just oscillate about wildly before they synchronize? And while Coase theorem seems to hold in an equilibrium scenario, I don't know if the transient domain before the equilibrium is reached 
is essentially like, you know, if it's 5 billion years, what's the point of it? And that's a question which I'm not fully sure I understand. It it would be hard for me to come up with an intellectually defensible reason why land owned by the crown, for instance, ought not to be transferred into democratic control just because I find it difficult to come up with an intellectually defensible justification for the existence of a hereditary monarchy yeah. in the first place. Yeah, now, that's, that's, not to, yeah. that's, not, that's not to say that <laughs> I um, would therefore, you know, flamboyantly denigrate uh, people having an emotional reaction to the death of the uh, sovereign who reigned for 70 years. <laughs> but anyway, that's, um, that's sort of my thought. Quick, quick point on what I was mentioning before, because I, I just read a, uh, a uh, academic article on this yesterday, but uh, the article's on. It's called. Uh, this, here's the name that people are interested. In. It's called. Not, it's it's a free article. You can find it on JSTOR. Uh, it's called "Non-Interventionism of the Left: The Keep America Out of the War Congress, 1930, 1938 to 1941." And here's a really um, interesting part. Uh, it says William Henry Chamberlain speaking before a Keep America Out of the War mass rally in May 1941 warned that an oil embargo would result in a major war with Japan. Now, of course, Roosevelt then imposed an oil embargo on Japan in August. And then uh, by December, you might have heard that uh, Pearl Harbor happened. So um, there was actually more more prescience at the t- contemporaneously as to like what U.S. policy was seeming to be making inevitable uh, than might be appreciated today. Um, so that's something you know I try to bear in mind when talking, when like thinking about the implications of current policy in various uh, fraught geopolitical contexts. Um, uh, no, I, I was going to say I actually agree with you entirely over that because if you look at it, correct me if I'm wrong, but Taft did not want to get themselves embroiled in a European war and. I think Roosevelt run, ran as a spoiler just to force America into that stupid war. Um, well, I mean, Roosevelt actually campaigned against American entry into the war in, in 1940. Um, but, you know, over time, obviously, his policy seemed to be telling a different story in terms of what the intent was. So uh, I don't think it's fair to say that Roosevelt exactly ran as a spoiler specifically to get the country into the war into war um but yeah i mean he was gradually increasing american provision of armaments and that sort of thing and even with regard to lend lease i mean you'd never know it but there was a huge robust debate around the introduction of lend lease uh to you know first britain and uh you know then to china and the soviet union in in uh, 19 Forty, nineteen forty-one. Um, whereas today, I mean, Lend-Lease passed unanimously in April, this past April, for Ukraine, and uh, you know there was no debate at all, really. Um, but you know, when that happened in the nineteen forties, it was seen rightly as as momentous, um, uh, and that was something that Roosevelt, you know, championed, and uh, you know, critics objected on the grounds that it would further enmesh the U.S. in the war effort, and, you know, they were right about that. I had a very interesting thought experiment, which is too hot for me to publish. Richard, is there any chance I can send it to you? 
Uh, what is that? <laughs> Nothing's too hot for Richard to publish. So. I had a very interesting thought experiment, which I've run by a few friends, but I can never actually write it out, even anonymously, because, you know, a lot of reasons. Is there any chance I can email it to you or something? You could email it to be sure. You want to, how long is it? It's like a screenshot. It's a screen. Okay, why don't you send, just DM it to me on Twitter if you want. Okay, thanks. Okay, sure. uh, last caller here, uh, Andrew. Again, one of our uh, better. Uh, we gotta give Neumann. Here. We gotta give Neumann another chance, don't we? He was already, he already was already up. Wait, yeah, he, just, loves, he needs he a second us. go. Oh, okay, well, I think we'll see. Does, so I think you need to value your call-ins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> These experts don't come. To He's me. greedy. He's getting greedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, just two things, really quick. First, on the China being cautious thing, I agree, and I was wondering if either of you have read the book by Barbara Tuckman, Joseph, uh, sorry, Stillwell and the Americans' Experience in China. No, I, I read um, Guns of August, like a lot of people, but not the, not, not that book. No, I haven't. Not, not many people know much about Joseph Stillwell, but he was the American military attache and then eventually commander of U.S. forces in China during World War II. And, uh mm-hmm. Basically, uh, on the ch- chief of staff of Shanghai Shek's military. And one of the things that Stillwell was furious about with China, while they were being invaded by Japan and also being, losing to communists as well, is that he wouldn't use tanks and equipment against them given to him by the U.S. Because then, if he used them, he might lose them, and then he couldn't have them. He wouldn't have them anymore. So you could argue that's an eccentricity of Shanghai Shek, but it kind of backs up what you're saying about this extremely cautious Chinese mindset. Even yeah, but, Chi- I mean, but, Ch- but yeah, there's a lot of Chinese who have behaved aggressively and crazily, who ride like Mao seem pretty crazy. So it's not always that China is just you know passive. I mean, it just depends on seeing who the leaders are. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, the other thing is, so I had a question for Richard. Uh, what if you know of the Mises Caucus takeover of the Libertarian Party, or if you pay attention to that at all, and if you had any thoughts on, uh, or if the Libertarian Party's worth thinking about? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, so um, I was, yeah, I was interested in this because I'm interested in sort of libertarianism and you know the intellectual world and and what's going on. So I read, I think it was a Reason article or, or something, and I uh, talked to the, um, the, uh, the the young woman who became, I think, like the chairwoman, I think, of the Libertarian Party or something, uh, the, uh, Angela McArdle. Um, um, you know, what, what do I what do I think about it? Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. It seems like there is a, you know, I I don't I don't think third, I, you know, in general, I don't think third parties are a good idea in the American system. I think people. Um, should be going within the two parties and trying to make them what they want because a third party is not going to win. I mean, the Libertarian Party has been, uh, you know, uh, around, I think, since the 70s and it's gone nowhere. And, you know, because we're a very, uh, we're a very highly divided country. So anytime there's going to be a third party, uh, it's going to take one more from one than the uh, one side than the other. Um, I think libertarians should put up their energy in, you know, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, whatever, you know, make either one. Uh, more libertarian, um, depending on your uh, uh, depending on your inclination. I, it seems like what happened with the uh, the, the Mises Caucus uh, takeover. It seems like they're becoming more sort of you know. It seems like there, there's a lot of uh, internet energy, and there's a lot of you know sort of these people who do podcasts that are uh, sort of all over Twitter. Um, 
and if you want to go that route, maybe that would be the way that a third party could have influence just by like, you know, being part of the conversation. It's probably not the best way to win elections. You're probably not going to win elections by, you know, being the best troll on Twitter. Um, but it could be a way to sort of influence public opinion, um, or at least elite opinion. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think third parties are, I, I don't think their prospects are ever good. I think people generally should try to influence the two major uh, parties, um, and uh, but yeah, still, just for the fun of it all, I'll be paying attention to the Libertarian Party and what they're what they're doing. What do you think about the strategy of uh, trying to get enough people to kind of hold the election hostage? I've heard a lot of third parties say that they know they can't win, but maybe they could uh, build some kind of coalition that has enough of a bipartisan reach that they could somehow threaten both parties that we're going to be the swing vote essentially. So you better do X, Y, or Z, or something. I mean, it's hard to court. It's hard to coordinate that. It's like the party can't like even coordinate among itself. Like the Republican Party didn't yeah. want Trump to like be the nominee in 2016, but like the party couldn't stop him, right? And like a lot of the party doesn't want him to be the party. So like the party can't even within themselves like can't even organize it. So like you're going to have like this coalition of like a third party, and you're going to negotiate with the Republicans, and Democrats. Yeah, I don't think that 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 could work. Well, wasn't the idea of this takeover? of the Libertarian Party was now it was more like formally oriented or aligned with you know MAGA Republicans and now such they so that the you know, children of Ron Paul yeah but I, I thought you know didn't they um, remove their pro-life position or something uh, sorry pro-choice position from their platform I mean I got the impression that the people who were most annoyed with this takeover were like the handful of people within the formal libertarian party kind of apparatus who are more kind of like maybe left libertarian types and they view this as kind of a, an ingratiation by the libertarian party with the Trump movement um, to the extent that they don't like I've seen it characterized that way in a lot of places. That's, yeah, that's how I've seen it characterized. I, I, mean, I don't know for sure if that's accurate. but Mike's, I mean, I follow uh, a lot of these guys. Uh, as Richard mentioned, they're very online. And um, I don't know. I kind of, they're definitely not left libertarian. The Mises caucus yeah. is very right wing. But in a lot of ways, there's overlap with, like, the far left on foreign policy. There's a lot of overlap on the podcast environment and it's just kind of an interesting I don't know I think it's the most interesting going, thing going in politics right now and I, I'm sick of Trump so it's like anything else but that is kind of interesting <laughs> to me yeah it's uh, that or uh, it's Trump or Beto O'Rourke <laughs> oh god kill yeah. me man <laughs> I'll go Sorry. to Ukraine in a trench before I have to deal with that alright thanks. thanks thanks Andrew alright uh, I guess um uh, Mr. Mathematician is up, and we'll give him another go if he's actually interested, or if he oh, he's oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, this guy as far as great power worth, <laughs> this, yeah, this guy, uh, he never stops. <laughs> as far as great power worth concerned, you know, there's another major possible flashpoint for war, which is Kashmir between India and Pakistan. And you know, do you think um, what, what, if anything, do you think the U.S. should be doing there to try to prevent, you know, a nuclear war for Kashmir or just some other really bad conventional war? Um, I don't know. What could I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know if there's a whole. I don't know if there's much that the U.S. can really do specifically with respect to Kashmir in terms of mediating or what have you. I think you know, in general, what the U.S. can do to avoid bad outcomes is to stop 
overtly antagonizing Russia and China <laughs> and, um, you know, making it more likely that there could be some flashpoint that arises that could spark wider conflict. So, you know, whatever the U.S. could do probably really isn't specific to that particular hotspot. It's just more of like the general policy posture that the U.S. seems now uh, – you know, the U.S. Can, can, committed just, to on a bipartisan basis. I mean, the U.S. is relatively friendly with both India and Pakistan. So, I, you know, as far as can, what can the U.S. do, it does seem like if you care a lot about preventing great power war, which I agree is a good thing, that it it's maybe seems worth thinking about uh, just, just, just putting that out there. I think it should sanction either country if it wants to go to war. Wait, so you're in favor of sanctions now, Richard? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What can we do about India and Pakistan? I don't know. If they're not going to be deterred by nuclear war, are they going to be deterred by sanctions? I mean, the U.S. should should uh, sternly... You know what you should. You know what the U.S. should do? It should make India and Pakistan. It should say whoever starts the war, we're going to make fun of them. Like we're going to like we're going to tell Hollywood and like you know uh, you know our our cultural sort of apparatus to declare them like bad guys like they did with Russia and like ban yeah. them from, like sporting or equipment. or whoever whoever whichever country drops uh, declares war, the U.S. will airdrop like. Uh, denim jeans and iPhones into the other country. So the other the country that doesn't declare war gets a reward of Well they get they get they get open borders. If India attacks <laughs> Pakistan, everyone from Pakistan gets to come to America and vice versa. And India's cut off. I think that that would influence behavior. All right, thanks always. I think he always now has the distinction of being the first call and caller that we've granted the honor of a, a second contribution in one session. Anyway, <laughs> Pierre, hey, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, I was just on, um, I was listening to, I was queued up for Brianna Joy Gray's call-in, and um, she had a three-hour show. She usually has long shows and uh, talks a long time with her callers, and I was next up, and then she ended her show. So <laughs> so I jumped on this Tough one, luck. so thanks for, thanks for taking it last minute. Um, I wanted to get your opinion, and we might not be able to finish the conversation uh, today, but I find the use of the word Russiagate to be very sloppily used and appropriated in ways that are is very ill-defined. So some people say, oh, well, Russiagate's just referring to just the collusion aspect, and then other people basically deny the whole premise altogether. Um and I understand that the media kind of went buck wild with it and people and there was a lot of liberals who used it as a way to cope with Trump winning. Um, and then other people just, yeah, just jumped to that conclusion of like him being like a Kremlin agent and all that crazy stuff. But like, do most people who use this term actually deny that Russia interfered in the election I don't think people, I, I don't know, it depends on the person who uses the term. I think that there's different levels of interference. So there's the hacking of the uh, DNC emails. Um, and then there's, uh, so do people who say Russiagate uh, deny that? Some of them do, but probably most of them don't. Probably most of them are not referring to that. I mean, okay. I, den I deny that it was justifiable for there to be this sudden explosion of frenzied consternation around this idea of quote interference you know interference to me was always a weasel word that was vague enough 
that it could, could be applicable to almost anything. I mean, when people were talking about Russian interference during that period, they could be talking about as trivial of examples of so-called interference as like literal just Twitter bots or Facebook memes. So interference came to be a very malleable term that was you know, so expansive that it could really encompass almost anything and, you know, no matter how trivial. Uh, so, you know, so would I flatly deny with 100% factual certainty that any Russian, quote, interference took place? No, but that's sort of a different issue than the way in which that concept was appropriated for domestic political purposes circa... 2016 and onward. And in terms of Russiagate not being an apt term or being misused, I mean, the way that I think about the term Russiagate when I've used it is specifically because if, 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 if the only issue was ever Russian interference, so, so called, then there really never would have been much of an issue, right? It became this constant source of manic speculation and it became the dominant like thematic uh, preoccupation of U.S. politics for several years, specifically because of this kind of looming theory that Trump or Trump associates had nefariously colluded with Russia. Um, So that premise is what I refer to largely as Russiagate and everything that sort of spawned from the kind of wild determination on the part of people in the media and the political class to prove that. And, of course, it was ultimately disproven. And that's why, you know, Russiagate now, at least when I use it for my own purposes, connotes a, uh, an exaggeratedly uh, botched, you know, American political obsession that uh, really still hasn't been reckoned with adequately in my estimation. Yeah, but I think the speculation part by the media, that's different than an invest. So the investigation was to determine if there was collusion and the, the investigation found there was no, there was not enough evidence of collusion, but then some people will say, well, they will, they'll use that as a reason to say, well, um, the whole thing was kind of like... What was the basis for the investigation in the first... What was the basis for the investigation But that means the investigation itself was predicated on... Yeah, the Steele dossier. On, on nonsense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if it didn't find... You know, prove the thing that it supposedly set out to prove, then all the wild, you know, um, consternation that resulted from the existence of the investigation was, you know, it was uh, kind of, it ought not to have existed. Um, So that's, it's not just that like something was innocently investigated and then, you know, through this measured empirical process determined not to have been true. It's that there was, there were a whole set of fallacious assumptions undergirding the narrative which gave rise to that investigation and which prolonged this frenzy for years and years and had all these kind of second order adverse effects on, you know, everything from foreign policy to just, you know, the media, you know, pumping out this never ending torrent of paranoia 
and kind of illog- illogical thinking. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, one thing I would say is that I don't know. I've heard conflicting uh, reports about whether the Steele dossier was the predicate for the investigation. I understand that it was very, uh, dis- or you know, uh, distorted in its meaning. And um, but I, from the reporting I've read, I don't think it was the predicate. I think there were other things that predicate that preceded it. Well, I mean, the predicate for the, the the official predicate for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, which is what the FBI opened in July of 2016, that supposedly was this uh, idea of the Australian ambassador being tipped off about this meeting between George Pap- Papadopoulos, sort of basically, you know, a a, a low level flunky um, bragging at a bar with this guy, Joseph Mifsud, who was actually, you know, a, an, uh, an intelligence asset. Um, and, uh, and that information getting to the FBI, then they opened up a investigation from there. I mean, that, that's the one of the storylines anyway, as to how the investigation was opened. But clearly there was sort of a constellation of factors uh-huh. that gave rise to the initiation of the investigation, including just the general, sort of paranoia and frenzy that were developing at around that time around Trump and how he was this interloper and how he was suspiciously, uh, you know, uh, deferential to Putin or praiseworthy of Russia or that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would argue just overall that the conditions in which it was assumed to be necessary to investigate this the concept of collusion um those were ill uh ill predicated in addition to whatever the specific predicate of like the formal fbi investigation might have been okay all right uh well actually lastly i'll say that i think there is this nebulous use because like i asked aaron mate on his call i said do you is it, does it refer to collusion or everything? And he said everything. I brought up the Senate Republican Intelligence Committee report. He said that was BS. Um, so yeah, I think that I don't know. I, I just I get so confused. And but I, I I get where you're coming from now. So thanks for yeah. your feedback on that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Pierre. Uh, yeah. Let's wrap it up now, Richard. Um, and sign yeah, off. Look, yes, look who's back in the queue. <laughs> no, well, I mean, always, I'm sorry. It's not a third time always, to try that's you an tonight. appropriate name for... Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, well, we're going to wrap it up, everyone. Uh, and I guess to sign off, I will just say, God save the king. I'll say, God save the king. Good night, everyone.